Last week, my partner and I had to do our first border run. Living in Costa Rica as perpetual tourists means we have to leave the country every 90 days or less, depending on what they give you when they stamp your passport. We got here in mid-May, so we were fast approaching illegality. We considered just flying back to the States, maybe see some family or friends for a few days, or taking a quick trip to Guatemala or Colombia, but we weren't sure about leaving our dogs for too long. Instead, we opted to rent a car and drive up to the Nicaraguan border. While that day was insane, and better left as a longer story for a future episode of our other podcast, Sweet Gringo Blood, somewhere between the countless lines and seemingly arbitrary investigations and taxes, I began thinking about how two of us gringos would navigate a problematic situation. There's about an hour of nothing before you reach the border. No gas stations, no services. And what if our rented Toyota was swallowed up by one of the ridiculously gigantic potholes, and we were stuck on the side of the road? What if they simply didn't let us back into Costa Rica? Or what if some incident happened and shut down the border? We had to physically walk across, so we had no car. Where would we go? What would we do? I know that any number of awful things can befall a person, in any country, at any time. And even though I thought we were well prepared, I was still acutely aware of how unprepared we were. And it made me consider just how we might act in the face of crisis. How do any of us act? I'd like to think that I'd be one of the brave ones, jumping into action, helping others out of the burning building or onto a lifeboat before myself, even though the survival instinct inside is screaming for me to push everyone aside and run to safety. But that's the thing. You can hope to be that person, the chivalrous one, the selfless one, but you can't know until it actually happens, until your life is threatened. The event, whatever throws your world into chaos or into crisis, that's one thing, and it's scary enough. But what about the uncertainty of how you will act or react? The uncertainty of not knowing until that fateful day comes, for me, that's all the more frightening. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 14. As Greg was pulling Carolyn through the waterfall and into the maintenance shed, Chadwick Stafford was leading the rest of Table 9 on a scramble through the hidden hallways of the Baroness, down metal service stairs, their shoes banging and thudding with each step, to the promenade level. When the hysterical passengers rushed the elevators, Marie watched Chad take his wife's hand, and they broke into a sprint. She didn't think Teresa with the back problems she'd mentioned more than once, could move so fast. But there she was. Then she felt Austin grab her own arm. Marie wanted to protest, to insist they get to Carolyn and Greg, to reconvene. But it was too late. The commotion of the panicked cruisers fell away, as most stayed behind in the elevator lobby, banging on the steel doors and on one another, or went to the nearest public stairwell. She felt drawn that way, too. Years of exit signs and evacuation drills urging her to find the closest escape. Yet Chad ignored this and led their group into the tangle of employee passageways. They heard the faint sounds of gunshots, but this didn't seem to phase Chad, 
and in turn the rest of the group kept moving, running, ducking through doorways, down one corridor, up another. The ship's interior was an absolute maze, and Marie had no idea where they were going. Just down. Away. As Donnie Fredericks ascended the throne, easing himself back into the captain's rickety chair, the stone totem placed between him and the large windows of the ship's bridge. Table nine were emerging on the empty promenade level. They bypassed the medieval-themed cafeteria and the casino, hiding and waiting in the alcoves and entryways of the duty-free liquor shop, candy dispensaries, and jewelry stores. When the coast was clear, they'd move to the next. The lights were off, the normal burble and splash of the fountains absent. The only activity was coming from the many TV monitors that normally were displaying the ship's aquatic progress, but now showcased sporadic images of the same stone totem interspliced with grainy footage of whipping, curling tentacles. Nearly all of the ship's offerings, normally bustling with passengers, had been sealed, dead bolts turned and metal gates pulled down. As everyone assembled on the Lido deck for the magic show, Donnie's underlings were busy down below, buttoning up the ship, stealing away methods of defense or survival. The one place they hadn't bothered with, though, was the arcade. Maybe they didn't think cruisers could do much with stuffed animals, or puzzles, or rolls of orange tickets, all of what lay behind the prize counter, Table Nine's chosen hiding spot. At first, Austin hesitated, lingering out in the hallway while the rest investigated the room, like a trusty canine sidekick dragging their feet on the porch of a haunted house. Maria had no idea why, and Austin didn't share. After a few tugs on his arm, he joined them. The rows and aisles of upright video consoles were blank, as was the neon tubing and strobe fixtures that normally lit the arcade like some futuristic craft. Only emergency lighting illuminated the space. A sickly white-gray glow that made the faux circuitry of the vacant children's area appear ghostly. That, and yet another TV monitor stuck between rows of plush unicorns and circus elephants. None of the group had said a word until they were safely behind the long glass counter. Teresa eased herself down to the carpet, wincing, groaning, the rush of their hurried escape catching up with her. Her husband crept around the rectangular area, opening drawers and cabinets, picking up staplers, rulers, ink pens, then tossing them back down, hunting for some sort of weapon. Marie slid down next to Teresa and put an arm around her. She didn't know what to say, or even if she should, but whispered, Teresa, we're going to be okay. Marie's own husband, Austin, was the one to respond. He wasn't bothering to crouch or stay out of view from the promenade corridor, nor was he attempting to match Marie's volume. Seriously? You believe that? Keep it down, Marie said, and she felt herself clutch Teresa's shoulder tighter. What's the point? Austin said. He was pacing smacking a hand down on the glass counter every few feet. After what we just saw? You think we're going to get out of this? Austin, please, Chad whispered from the other end of the prize counter. He walked away to do another sweep of the arcade. What are you saying? Marie asked. I'm saying that we're here in some serious shit, Austin retorted, rubbing his palms against his temples. Marie thought, keep your head together, babe. Her husband hadn't ever been the greatest in crisis situations. Not that the two of them had been in many. Besides the occasional loss of power during the snowstorm, the random fender bender, or the inevitable problems with the kids in high school or middle school, 
the Holtz had always lived a relatively innocuous life. Austin's biggest issues, normally, were with self-righteous students and vitriolic faculty members, wars that were waged behind email addresses and tenure-track espionage. In fact, besides a misguided foray into the swinger life, neither had done much of anything that would be considered risky or crazy. They'd gone full bore into the roles that America, or, more specifically, small-town Wisconsin, had prescribed for them. Finish high school. Get married. Start a career. Have kids. Retire. Die. All within the same hundred-mile radius from where they were born, just like the generations before them, and certainly like those that would come after. A bubble of safety, or a familial prison of expectations and obligations. Even the sporadic vacations they'd gone on were conducted with the strictest of itineraries, and to destinations that featured all-inclusivity, refundable tickets, and round-the-clock security. Hell, this very cruise was supposed to be, despite the assumed spontaneity, more of the same. So maybe that was why Marie had gotten into writing, of world-building. Well, she'd always been a writer. Back in elementary school, she'd written an eight-page novel called The Gingerbread Strawberry. Her teacher called it the next great American novel. No, the passionate flight of romance novels. Those swollen members and glistening bodies giving her a reprieve from her safe, albeit mundane, life. Can you sit down with me, please? Murray asked. Next to her, Teresa was sucking in deep breaths, but between them, she added, Come on, Austin, sit down. What for? How long can we hide? His voice, quivering, was rising with each word. We've got no phones, no way to call for help. We are in the middle of the ocean with a bunch of madmen who are in control of the ship. We just watched the captain get executed. How do you expect me to be calm right now? Austin was pacing, but after a third pass, he stopped, stared at one of the stuffed animals, then snatched it off the shelf. He turned it over in his hands a few times, then tore the elephant in half. Clouds of white fuzz floated down to Marie's feet. He then threw the two halves into the shadows of the arcade. Marie's husband was barreling toward a panic attack. I'm not saying to be calm. I'm just telling you that we need to be quiet right now, Marie whispered. Listen to your wife, Chad said, returning from the darkness of the arcade. He was slowly moving back down the aisle toward them, tracing a finger along the glass of the countertop. Or what? Aren't we just delaying the inevitable? Who's going to get here in time? The Coast Guard? The Navy? And then Chad was next to him. Austin, he said, his voice level and calm. What? I need you to shut the fuck up. Austin's face fell. His rising panic now exchanged for obstinance. When her husband argued, with her or anyone else, there was no depth to his stubbornness. Even if every particle of the fight was his fault, he would die on the most ridiculous of hills. Austin couldn't stand to lose. King indignant, Marie called him. How dare you talk to me like that, Austin said. This isn't some kind of military operation. You're absolutely right. It isn't. That's why I, why we, need some time to figure all the variables out. We won't get the chance if you keep yelling if you keep acting like a fool and alert them to our position. Position? 
Austin mimicked. He let out an uneasy laugh. Variables? Who the hell do you think you are? Private Ryan? There it was, Marie thought. Just back off. Sit down. But always the stuffy academic, Austin was a pro at choosing the route of wounding with words, not fists. I will tell you one more time, Austin. Be quiet. You are not only endangering yourself and your wife, but mine as well, and I won't stand for it. Marie knew her husband wasn't going to back down, but rather than this feeling like something to be proud of, she was irritated and afraid. Barely audible, she said, Austin, please. You won't stand for it? Austin said, nearly shouting. And what are you going to... For his age, Chad was much faster than Marie expected. His left arm was a flash, and a curled fist was sinking into Austin's torso. Marie's husband, the father of her children, the nearly two-decade community college professor, doubled over. Whatever breath left in his lungs was forced out like a bellows. He dropped to his knees, then fell back against the counter, dry heaving. Marie knew whatever budding friendship they had was, right then, resoundingly, over. Austin was the sort to hold grudges. I'm sorry I had to do that, Chad said, but we can't go to pieces. It's important to remember that there are always options. We don't have to surrender. We just need to gather our thoughts, not freak out, and make a plan. This time, Austin didn't respond. That was two hours ago, maybe three. Chad had left the group twice, creeping out into the darkened promenade. The first time, he returned with a broomstick, the head having been spun off. He snapped it in half and tried to give one jagged end to Austin, but he was ignored, so he set the weapon on the counter above Austin's head. While Carolyn and Greg the critic, many floors above them, were checking the crumpled man for a pulse, Chad returned from a second trip, this time passing out bottles of warm water and stale bran muffins he'd found on an unattended service cart. Austin took the offerings, begrudgingly, and ate the muffin with his back turned to the group. Marie had felt pulled to go to him multiple times, a 20-year marital bond directing her, but she stayed where she was, next to Teresa. This was a hard thing to reconcile, wanting to go to her husband, to be there for him, because he was undoubtedly embarrassed, profoundly upset, but knowing that he had brought it upon himself. She also knew that she'd hear about it later. Maybe. If they got out of this. And that was the question, wasn't it? How were they going to get out of this? And more importantly, figuring out exactly what this was. We are off course, Chad said. That much we know. Judging from the drop in temperature while we were up on deck, I'd say we're heading due north. With her mouth full, Therese asked, To where? What's north of us? Well, Chad said, considering. We were out of Caribbean waters. Somewhere maybe halfway between the continents, or close to it. So I figure if we stay on this course, we're going to reach Iceland or Greenland. Somewhere cold, Marie added. Yeah, if they didn't kill the rest of the crew, maybe they'd be able to navigate through the glaciers and whatnot, whatever else is up there, and we could make it to the Arctic. But I have no idea. I don't know what's up there. I don't know what's going on. I was in the Air Force. I'm used to being high above the sea, not crossing it. Well, what is up there? Teresa asked. You got me, Chad said. I don't want to find out, though. 
The ocean's always rubbed me the wrong way. Something about not knowing what lies beneath you. Same here, Teresa added. Marie actually felt herself smile. Then why the hell would you two decide to go on a transatlantic cruise? In unison, the couple said, Cheap tickets. And then Chad added, And these things, they're, they're different than like a schooner or a sailboat. It's like an island. You can barely even feel the lilt of the ship. Well, at least when we were further south. I think we might be running into rougher seas now that we're going north. Marie realized then that she had forgotten all about the subtle sway of the ship. She was off balance the first day and felt a touch of seasickness the second. But she'd adapted, fallen into the rhythm. But now that Chad had brought it up, she could feel the steady reeling. It was like a reminder of how far away from rescue they really were. It's funny, isn't it? Teresa said. I always thought the threat was from below. Who knew it would come from the ship itself? Or rather, the people aboard it. But there's nothing up there, Murray said, north of us, right? Nothing habitable. I mean, is there anything the terrorists might want up there? Austin laughed. He still had his back to them. Is that what they are? Teresa asked. Didn't seem like it to me. Chad pulled on his water bottle and said, Not with all that gibberish they've been spewing. Chanting. Feels more like praying to me. Sort of religion. And that's exactly why you should be afraid, Austin said, still not facing the group. When no one responded to him, he spun around and asked, Humor me. Off the top of your head, can you name any horrible crime or terrorist event? A kidnapping, a bombing, assassination that wasn't carried out in the name of one deity or another? Teresa began, Well, 9-11 was obviously an inside, but her husband cut her off. Teresa, please, now is not the time for conspiracy theories. Well, it's a conspiracy, but it's certainly not a theory, Teresa said, her voice rising out of whisper mode. Buildings don't fall like that. They don't pancake, not unless Chad sighed heavily. It doesn't really matter, Austin said. There is still something about it that is rooted in belief. Think about Munich, Black September, or that cult in Japan gassing the trains. People do horrible things because of what they believe. Like saw a man in half? Chad asked. Exactly, Austin said. And what is it these people believe? Teresa asked. But rather than answer, Austin lifted an arm and pointed at the television monitor. The stone totem, with its etched tentacles and wings, still sat motionless on an off-white desk. The random images cut through every few seconds, that of squid and octopi, grappling, squeezing, drowned, doomed objects. Sometime since they'd fled the Lado deck, since the punch in the gut, while he was pouting, Austin's resolve had returned. He'd been doing some thinking. So, Teresa began, you're saying that they, that blonde asshole and the rest, are willing to do all of this, to kill the captain and take over a ship, to take all of us hostage, and then she paused, as if the gravity of the word had just settled on her. In the name of that? Chad added, because of a statue? No, of course not, Austin scoffed. They're doing it because of the thing that inspired the statue in the first place. But nothing like that exists on this earth. How can you be so sure? Austin asked. 
You said it yourself, Chad, Marie said. She shocked herself at the sound of her own voice. We have no idea what lurks deep in the ocean. No, Chad said. He was whipping his head side to side. No, no, no. I refuse to believe that a bunch of cruise ship employees, a bunch of insane people, have done all of this. He paused and waved an arm around, as if the silent arcade was proof enough. Because they think some giant squid monster is hanging out, taking a nap somewhere in the North Atlantic. And that's why you should really be worried, Austin said. It doesn't matter if that creature really exists or not. You're missing the point, Chad. They believe it does, and are obviously prepared to do whatever they want in service of that belief. And when no one responded, Austin added, Trust me, that magic show was only the beginning. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Ghost Modernist. If you haven't yet, and you've got a free minute, please review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to get this into the ears of more listeners. The theme music, as always, for today's episode of The Ghost Modernist was provided by Atrium Carcheri. And remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you? <laughs>